Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Devil's Reflection Mine has been a life of quiet shame. I've always found it off-putting when supposedly mature adults blame their problems on the faults of their parents. But there was something about my upbringing that left me with an unbreakable sense of ostracized humiliation. Even after 37 years on this planet, I sometimes still feel like the guilt-ridden child I once was, grasping for the approval of my impenetrable father. Of course, my father's gone now. He has been for more than two decades. But that does little to sate the yearning that I feel. I was raised on a farm in the rural Idaho town of Talenka. It's a small place, nestled in the northernmost tip of the state, so close to Canada you could hit it with a rock. And while most people probably would have found it barren and tragically boring, it always felt right to me. By that I don't mean that I liked it there, because I've never really liked it anywhere. What I mean is that it was an area of the world that was designated for people like me. It was disconnected and desolate. Most people didn't even know it existed. And as a disaffected child who couldn't imagine fitting in, the nature of that place seemed somehow fitting. We had a farm, but no crops, no livestock. The only aspect of the sprawling acreage that was put to any use was the barn. My father worked in there, and for most of my childhood it was strictly off-limits. He made a living restoring old furniture, specifically antique mirrors. He would buy the rickety old things at estate sales and restore them before selling them to dealers and collectors. Sometimes, when he was away acquiring new inventory... I would slip into the barn through one of the loose windows and poke around. It was like a great hall of mirrors, all of them stacked in rows at odd intervals like a labyrinth of reflections. As I crept through the space, I would catch a glint of my reflection from the corner of my eye, looming in a place where I didn't expect it to be. And as always, I would become convinced that there was a rogue version of me, a nefarious doppelganger stalking me through the barn. I would run, panting with fear, as I searched in vain for the exit. As I scrambled back out the window, I would take one last look back, expecting to see someone with a distorted version of my face, staring back at me from the shadows. And then my father would come home, and I would stay well away from the barn until he left town and it was time for me to scare myself yet again. My father seemed to like his work. In fact, along with drinking, it might have been the only thing in his life that he liked. He certainly didn't seem very interested in me or my mother. She spent most of her days laid up in bed. My father told me that she was atoning for the sins of her ancestors, 
that there were demons in her bloodline and they whispered to her from the dark corners of the room. She would have episodes where it got especially bad. I would be up all night listening to her paranoid screams while my father prayed over her in the flickering light of their candlelit room. Go back to bed, he would say if he caught me loitering in the hallway outside their room. Your mother's fighting the demons tonight. I know now that she was never possessed. She wasn't fighting demons, she was fighting schizophrenia. But in the eyes of my father, mental illness was an invention of man, no more real than telekinesis or Dracula. It was a hazy summer day in 1995 when my father went away on one of the longest trips he ever took. Before he left, he pulled me aside and told me that if my mother were to have an episode while he was away, I was to call him immediately and pray in her room until he got back. Thankfully, she didn't have an episode while he was gone, but something much worse did happen. That trip was the beginning of the end for my father. He was going to Connecticut for the estate sale of a deceased writer named Sigmund Burroughs. Burroughs had written occult horror fiction in the vein of Ambrose Bierce and Arthur Mockin while he was alive. And while my father found his writing to be deranged and distasteful, Burroughs did have something that my father was very interested in. It was a tall, standing mirror, said to have been owned by the Austrian Emperor, Franz Joseph I. The mirror was all my father talked about for weeks leading up to his trip. Before he even brought it home, he seemed already to be obsessed with it. When I saw my father approach down the long gravel driveway that led to our house, the mirror shrouded in a mass of blankets in the bed of his truck, I got a strange prickling sensation in my gut. Without even having seen the antique, I could already detect that there was something not right about it. It carried a kind of atmosphere with it, something foreboding yet indiscernible, like a bad stench that hangs in your nostrils long after its source is gone. For the first few days that my father was home for his trip, he seemed normal enough. He was quiet and detached, but no more than he normally was. It wasn't until a week had gone by that I started to notice him changing. It was just small things at first, like the look in his eyes when he came in from the barn. He had the eyes of a man that was harboring a secret, like he was privy to something that the rest of the world only wished it could know. Then he began staying in the barn longer and longer, eventually asking my mother to bring him his dinner while he worked on the mirror. After one such night, I heard my mother in the other room talking to her sister on the phone. She was saying that when she had brought him his meal, he hadn't been working on the mirror, but simply sitting before it, staring at his own reflection as if he were having a silent conversation with himself. I could hear the fear and agitation in my mother's voice, and I knew that whatever the mirror was doing to my father, it wasn't good. One night, he didn't come in from the barn at all, ostensibly spending the entire night sitting before the mirror, gazing into his own reflection. As I left for school the following morning, I saw him stagger out of the barn, flinching at the sunlight. His face looked grim and emaciated, his hands balled into tight, veiny fists. I watched his pale eyes grimace at me for a moment and then took off running down the driveway towards the bus stop. A week later, I decided it was time for me to see for myself what he was up to in that barn. He was taking his morning shower when I said goodbye to my mother and left the house. Only, instead of going to the bus stop, I walked down the driveway before slipping off into the woods and doubling back towards the side of the barn. I swung the low window open and climbed inside. 
After waiting a moment to make sure I hadn't blown my cover, I made my way up the rickety old ladder that led to the hayloft. The boards creaked every time I moved, so I knew I would have to remain silent and still the whole time my father was in there. But that seemed like a small price to pay to crack the mystery of my father's obsession with the mirror. You see, at that time I was still convinced that my father's behavior was a mere mystery that could be solved, a problem that could be fixed. What I didn't know was that my father was already well beyond saving, that the horror creeping into our lives extended well beyond the confines of that decrepit old barn. When my father entered for his day's work, I watched silently from my perch in the hayloft. I peered through a hole in a rusted tractor fender as he made his way through the maze of mirrors. When he arrived before the mirror he'd acquired from the Sigmund Burroughs auction, he got slowly to his knees. He folded his hands in his lap and bowed his head as if he were praying to the old relic. It was a perplexing sight watching him kneel before the mirror. He gazed at it with apparent adoration, his lips moving silently as he recited his muted incantations. And then, without provocation, he exuded a deep, bellowing laugh, as if somebody had just told a hysterical joke. I watched in awe as he chuckled, emptying his lungs in quick, frenzied breaths. Never in my twelve years had I seen him laugh like that. When the uproarious laughter finally stopped, his face returned to its usual somber composure and he got slowly to his feet. He ambled over towards the workbench, taking slow, staggering steps, as if he were completely depleted of energy. After a moment spent gathering items from the workbench, he returned to the mirror with a handful of rags and a bottle of wood stain. He flipped the cap open and soaked one of the rags. The wood stain's chemical odor was so strong I could smell it all the way from the hayloft. I watched Sean as he began to lather the mirror's wooden frame with one of the rags. He began with long, slow strokes, turning the wood from a sandy color to a deep amber brown. He seemed to revel in the process as it drew thin beads of sweat across his forehead. And as he continued to stroke the wooden frame, his movements went from slow and controlled to spastic and violent. He was applying so much pressure to the rag, I almost thought he would break the frame. It was as if he was trying to wear through the surface of the wood, penetrating the grain with a dark, shining finish. Animal grunts emanated from his mouth as he worked, and he stared at the mirror with such intensity I began to feel a deep, gnawing unease as I watched him. Eventually, he released the mirror from his trembling grip and staggered backwards into his workbench. He slowly lowered himself down to the ground, and his long, wiry arms came to rest at his sides. For the rest of the day, he did little more than putz around the workshop, mumbling to himself. Every few minutes, he would shoot a concerned glance over his shoulder at the mirror, as if to make sure it was still there. When he finally left the barn, I silently climbed down from the hayloft and slipped back out the window. In the weeks that followed, my father's odd behavior continued. He spent most of his time in the barn, and when he finished for the day, he would drive off in his truck often staying out into the early hours of the morning. He never told me or my mother what he was doing when he left the farm, but I had a sneaking suspicion that his mysterious errands had something to do with the mirror. With each day that passed, I found myself praying that he would soon find a buyer for the mirror, silently convincing myself that when it was gone, our lives would return to some semblance of normalcy. But it didn't happen that way. Instead of the mirror leaving our lives, it was my father who disappeared. 
He went out to the barn one day to work on the mirror and never returned to the house. With his dinner sitting cold on the kitchen table, my mother went out to the barn to look for him, but he was nowhere to be seen. His truck was still parked out front and his tools lay scattered before the mirror, as if he had just stepped away from his work to use the bathroom. Oddly, the wooden floor beneath the mirror was black and charred as if a small fire had been there, but the mirror itself was immaculate. Its frame maintained its dark, unblemished sheen, and its surface presented a hauntingly clear reflection of whoever stood before it. For the next few weeks, search parties were dispatched to the woods that surrounded our farm, and missing posters were plastered across Talenka. I remember watching through my bedroom window as my mother conversed with the sheriff. He would grimly shrug and shake his head, and she would fall to tears, having learned that another day of the search had gone by with no results. But I myself never cried for my father. I found that I couldn't, even when I tried. His stark demeanor had inflected such a relentless coldness on me through the years that it was nearly impossible to think of him with any sense of emotion or yearning. I thought of him less as a beloved family member than as a commanding officer who would always outrank me. And even after he was gone, the strict rules and regiments he had inflicted upon me still seemed to linger. It was as if he was still there, watching me from somewhere just out of sight and scrutinizing my behavior with his cold tongue. As the years went by, my mother and I talked less and less. We took in a live-in caretaker to aid her during her episodes, and I receded further into myself, finding solace only in my thoughts and in the worlds I found in books. When I graduated high school, I made my way south to the University of New Mexico, where I studied French literature. There I found some sense of identity, continuing to build my reverence for writing and for the stories that offered me an escape from this world. But the remnants of my father and his strange obsession with the mirror remained. Some nights I would dream of him, his pale, veiny arms reaching out of the darkness to strangle me in my sleep. Other times I found myself averting my gaze from the bathroom mirror as I brushed my teeth. A chill would run through me, and I would be gripped by a sudden fear that if I looked at my reflection, I wouldn't see myself but him staring back at me with the same unnerving intensity I'd seen on him that day in the barn. After college, I published a book on French Romanticism, and eventually found work as an adjunct professor at the school where I'd gotten my degree. I mostly kept to myself, never married, and had few friends. But I was happy in my work, and in the opportunity to pass the gift of literature on to my students. It was a blustery winter day, a week and a half ago, when I walked across the quad and into my office in the Humanities Building. As I unraveled my scarf from around my neck and dropped it on my desk, my phone began to ring. I stared at it for a moment before lifting it from the cradle and pressing it to my ear. As the stranger began to speak, I knew immediately what had happened. My mother's suffering had finally ended. A pang of guilt rose up in me as I realized I had abandoned her, left her to live out the rest of her days on that farm in lonely misery. When it finally came, she had probably welcomed her death. But as I thought about her years of isolated suffering, I realized that if I too had stayed in that place, it would have cost me my life as well. I wasn't sure how or why. Maybe I would have eventually put the muzzle of a shotgun in my mouth. Or perhaps I would have gone mad just like her. But one way or another, it would have killed me. 
As the stranger continued to speak to me, their words fading in and out, I became subtly aware that I had just inherited the farm, and with that realization came a sudden sense of terror. I would have to return to that place that constituted my worst fears. The stranger explained that as next of kin, I had to identify my mother's body, and if I intended to sell the farm, I would have to clear out the house and sign some paperwork. The proposition seemed daunting, impossible even. But as I hung up the phone and leaned back in my chair, I considered the idea that with my mother at peace and the farm finally sold, perhaps I would find reconciliation from that haunted strip of land that stole the early years of my life. Making my way north through Utah, I found myself wondering what my mother's corpse would look like. She would be bloated, I imagined, her wide eyes bulging, her lips pale and cold. And while it seemed a macabre thing to imagine, I suppose it was just my way of preparing myself for what was to come. When I arrived in Talenka, I was surprised to find that not much had changed since I'd fled the town as a scarred 17-year-old. It was green and lush, bisected by a deep winding river and set between thickly wooded mountains. On the main drag, old brick buildings sat crumbling in heaps, and a few of the local townspeople stood out front chatting, their eyes seeming to draw a bead on me as I passed. I watched them disappear in the rearview mirror as I made my way towards the farm, taking comfort in the fact that I'd never have to see them again. Darkness began to fall as I headed down the long driveway that led to the house. The headlights of my car sliced through the trees, conveying their monstrous shadows against the dark backdrop of the forest. When I saw the lights illuminate the rotting wooden siding of the house and glimmer in the dull windows, the hair on my arms began to prickle. Gravel crunched under my tires as I brought my car to a stop out front, and for a moment I sat frozen in my seat, observing the vacant residence as if I expected to see movement inside. A thick coat of dust coated every surface in the house. The furniture was in disarray and a few of the broken windows had been boarded up. Unopened mail lay strewn about the floor, and in the kitchen the remains of a coffee pot lay shattered in pieces. I heaved a sigh of agitation at the sight, but was also silently grateful that my mother had not been a hoarder. The stairs creaked as I ascended them, moving through the darkness towards my old bedroom. As I crossed the threshold into the dim quarters, I found my room to be much as I had left it. The small twin bed set in the corner, my splintery wooden desk next to it. I lowered myself down on the mattress and untied my boots, listening to the trees creak outside as they swayed in the wind. When morning came, I awoke with a stiff neck. I hobbled downstairs to make a pot of coffee and then remembered that the coffee pot lay in pieces on the ground. A light snow was falling as I drove to the county coroner's office, my hands trembling slightly as they gripped the wheel. The medical examiner greeted me with a stiff handshake, his slender body seeming to jostle as he spoke. I followed him into a chilly room, its stainless steel walls bathed in fluorescent light. He stood for a moment before one of the chambers in the wall and then popped the refrigerator door open. Cold air wafted out as my mother's body slid towards me. Take as long as you need, he said, before turning on a heel and walking out of the room. My eyes fell across my mother's corpse, her arms and back stained blue with lividity. The skin on her fingers was pulled tight, making her fingernails look like bony protrusions. The lips on her face 
which looked nothing like the delicate things I remembered, were frozen in a rigid circle, exposing mottled gums and stained teeth. Her nose appeared as though it were collapsing in on itself, and her dry scalp gave way to gray, bristly hair. I took the sight in for only a few seconds before shrinking away and retreating from the room. Then I accepted her death certificate with a shaky hand before walking back out into the snow. The rest of the day was spent cleaning the house. I arranged for the Salvation Army truck to come pick up the furniture and hired a realtor to handle the sale. The snow had ceased falling, but a frigid wind had descended upon the farm. It whistled through the trees, shaping the snow into sharp mounds. As I sat on the porch, bundled up in a canvas jacket and dragging on a cigarette, the dilapidated barn caught my eye. Though I couldn't have said why, I found myself taking slow, tentative steps through the snow towards it. The heavy wooden doors slid open with a rusty creak, and my eyes fell upon the space that had cost my father his sanity. An array of unfinished projects populated the space. Cracked and rotting mirrors pointed in every direction, and heaps of spare pieces littered the floor. In the back, sitting just under the hayloft, was his magnum opus, the burrow's mirror. A sheet had been draped over it, but I could tell what it was even without seeing it. I approached it on unsteady legs, my cigarette still burning between my fingers. When I stood before it, I halted, feeling my breath catch in my lungs. I gripped the sheet and pulled it off the mirror. It was just as I'd remembered it. The dark amber frame contoured with hand-carved grooves and a clawed foot on each corner. The glass was immaculate, my pristine reflection staring back at me, maintaining a subtly disturbed expression. My eyes fell to the floor and I could see that the mirror still stood on charred ground, the wood blackened around its base from an apparent fire. As my gaze rose back up to the mirror, a sudden panic gripped me. My reflection was inexplicably gone. All I could see in the mirror's smooth glass was the darkened interior of the barn that lay behind me. I staggered backwards, a terrified cry stuck in my throat, before my heel caught on the leg of a stool and I tumbled backwards. When I gathered myself and looked back at the mirror, my reflection had returned. I breathed an agitated sigh of relief, almost snickering at my own paranoia, before tossing the sheet back over the mirror and walking steadfast out of the barn. The following morning, as I slid my mother's nightstand out into the hallway for the Salvation Army pickup, a slim notebook dislodged itself from its hiding place behind one of the drawers and toppled onto the wooden floor. I flipped it over to see the word diary scrawled across its cover in my mother's neat hand. I began to thumb through it, feeling at first nostalgic at the way my mother recorded the events of her life. But then the tone of her entries began to turn. I checked the date and realized that the jarring change in her writing corresponded with that summer day in 1995 when my father brought the mirror home. Her concern was subtle at first, but as I read on, I was shown a side of my father that I'd been completely unaware of. While working on the mirror, my father had apparently come to believe that there was a whole separate world inside of it. He would explain to my mother that it showed him things, places and people that didn't exist in our world. He believed that it held an entire dimension of existence that lay just outside of ours. 
A tingling sensation crawled up my spine as I read, and despite the cold temperature in the house, a thin sheen of sweat began to accumulate on my forehead. But despite the lurking sense of dread I felt, I continued to read. As my father's obsession progressed, he had apparently told my mother that the mirror began to speak to him. It was just whispers at first, but later he held entire conversations with the relic. It told him that he could live in the world that the mirror held, that the mirror world was without pain and evil, that there his wife would be free of her demons. But there was a price, the mirror had told him. To secure his place in the mirror world, he would have to claim the life of someone in ours. A life for a life, the mirror had told him. At this, my mother became increasingly concerned and even took to carrying a small handgun in her purse. The voices in her own head began to warn her about him, claiming that her husband was no longer to be trusted, that he had given himself over to evil and was on the cusp of committing an act of irrevocable violence. A sudden knock on the door ripped me out of my fixation. I dropped the diary to the floor, and as I walked away, I wondered, for the first time in my adult life, if the voices my mother heard were something more than the symptoms of an unfortunate mental illness. I pulled the front door open and greeted the Salvation Army volunteers. They were wearing high-glow orange jackets and had big, brawny hands. As they carried the furniture out of the living room and loaded it into their truck, I went back upstairs and returned to my mother's diary. A desire to read further nagged at me, but the last entry had left me so chilled that I decided instead to slip it into my pocket and finish it later. When the Salvation Army volunteers had gone, and the house lay silent and empty, I still found myself stewing over the last diary entry I had read. I wondered about the late-night errands my father was running in the weeks before he disappeared, and considered what he might have been capable of. He had always been harsh and unpredictable, but was he violent? Evil? I decided on a whim to go to the old library in town. It was a red brick building with a grand arch opening, and on that Thursday afternoon it was basically empty. When I got inside, I found their ancient microfilm machine still sitting in the back corner, just as I had hoped. I heaved myself into the chair that sat before it and began scrolling through the newspaper articles from the weeks leading up to my father's disappearance. I wasn't entirely sure what I was looking for, not, at least, until I found it. Just three days before my father had vanished, a suspected abduction had occurred a few miles from where we lived. Kenneth Jameson, a 22-year-old gas station attendant, had ended his graveyard shift at the fill-and-go station in the early morning hours. He was due to return home to his wife and young daughter by around 4 a.m., but he never arrived. Instead, his station wagon was found still parked out front of the gas station, with the driver's side door hanging open and his car keys laying on the ground. A fair amount of blood and two torn fingernails were recovered from the scene, leading police to believe that a struggle had taken place. There were few leads and fewer suspects, but several tips were called in that witnesses had seen a beige pickup truck prowling the area the night before the disappearance. My eyes froze on the microfilm screen as I remembered the off-white Dodge Ram my father used to drive. Old Faithful, he used to call it. He would tell me that one day he would teach me to drive in that truck, but that day never came. About a year after he went missing, my mother ended up selling it. 
I never sat behind the wheel of that old truck, and as I sat in that quiet library booth, I was grateful for that. Feeling slightly feverish, I read on, hoping for more details. But with little for the police to go on, the case eventually went cold. As far as I could tell, Kenneth Jameson was never found. When I arrived back at the farm, I stood for a moment on the porch, looking out over the barren swath of snow-covered land. I wondered if somewhere, buried deep under that snow, were the rotting bones of a young father. The idea made me shudder. As I turned to go inside, I noticed that the barn door hung ajar. For a second, it even seemed like there was a light on inside. But with the rays of the setting sun reflecting across the snow, I convinced myself that it was only a trick of the light. Nevertheless, I made my way across the yard to shut the door. The last thing I wanted was to have to shoo a family of raccoons out of the barn when the realtor arrived. Standing before the door, its cold iron handle grasped in my hand, I poked my head inside to make sure nothing had gotten in. To my surprise, I could see that the sheet, which I clearly remembered placing back over the burrow's mirror, was laying on the ground. The wind, I told myself. The wind from the storm. I had simply left the door cracked, and the wind had gotten in and blown the sheet off the mirror. It sounded reasonable enough, but no matter how I tried to wrestle the idea into my head, I could never quite believe it. With my hands balled into tight fists, I made my way across the barn, watching my reflection approach in the darkened glass. I swiped the sheet up off the ground, and as I did, a whisper floated into my ear from over my shoulder. I recognized the voice immediately. My entire body tensed as I listened to the distinct sound of my father calling my name in his eerily hushed tone. I whipped my head around, but nobody was there. Just the dark, empty barn. The graveyard of mirrors. As I turned back around, I fanned the sheet out, preparing to toss it back over the mirror. But something stopped me. I struggled for a moment to comprehend what I was seeing. At the base of my reflection, where should have stood one pair of legs, there was two. Just behind my shoes stood a pair of ragged leather boots. Gangly legs sprouted out of them and I traced the reflection of the figure standing behind me as my eyes rose to my face. I was paralyzed with fear as my father's face came into view. He was looming in my reflection just over my shoulder. He had bony, hollow cheeks, and his long, crooked nose was cracked and peeling. The hair on his head was gray and dirty, clumps of it missing where scars dug into his scalp. But it was his eyes that truly terrified me. They were void of pupils and corneas, just shining white masses. It was as if his eyeballs had been scooped out and luminescent orbs had been placed in his sockets. But somehow, I could still feel him staring at me, still feel his white-hot intensity bearing down on me. A scream caught in my throat, like the startled child I once was, scaring himself into a panic after sneaking into his father's barn. I tossed the sheet over the mirror and sprinted back outside. As I slid the door shut, I took one last look inside, relieved to see that the barn was again empty. Back in the relative warmth of the house, I rolled a blanket out next to the radiator and lay down on the ground. The furniture was gone, so I no longer had a bed to sleep in, but with the realtor arriving the following morning, I relished in the fact that my time on the farm would soon be over.
Rolling over on my side, I balled my jacket up and used it as a makeshift pillow. I nestled up next to the radiator, hoping to absorb as much of the heat as possible. As I was about to close my eyes in search of an exhausted sleep, something caught my eye. Wedged between the radiator and the wall was the corner of what appeared to be an envelope. It was yellowed with age and appeared to bulge slightly, as if it held a thick wad of paper. I reached my fingers back into the narrow space where it lay, singeing my skin slightly on the hot surface of the radiator. When I pried it free, I found that it was not holding paper, but photographs. There was two dozen of them, all black and white. They were nature shots, mostly, and appeared to be the work of my mother. I had vague memories of my mother carrying an old 35mm Hasselblad around the farm and snapping pictures of the far fields on the horizon. A homesick kind of warmth came over me as I gazed at the photographs. Remembering that while my mother had a paranoid neurotic side of her, she was also blessed with a beautifully artistic view of the world. I flipped from one photo to the next, noting her keen eye for composition, her ingenious use of light and perspective. And then I came across a photo that was different from all the others. It was shot indoors with the grainy texture of a high ISO setting. I quickly recognized the setting of the photo as the interior of the barn. The edges of the frame were obscured by clutter, as if it were shot while my mother was hiding amongst a pile of junk. And that would make sense, given the photo's subject. At the center of the frame, in clear focus, stood my father. He was bracing himself against the mirror, his hands gripping its upper corners, his gaze fixed intently on the glass. Only, the mirror itself depicted no reflection of him. It merely portrayed the darkened interior of the barn that lay behind him. I gaped at the picture, trying to make sense of it for a few long minutes, until I realized that there was a similar one behind it. Only, this one was even more perplexing. It showed my father, or at least what was left of him, as he disappeared into the glass pane of the mirror. The entirety of his left leg and most of his left arm had melded with the glass as he stepped through the mirror's frame. If it weren't for the reflective glass surrounding him, you'd think he was stepping through a doorway. How? I found myself saying aloud, my hollow voice echoing through the empty house. And then I noticed yet another photo in the sequence. In this one, the exposure was slightly blurred, and given what my mother was witnessing when she was shooting the photos, I could understand why her hands might be shaking. In the third and final photo of the sequence, the ground beneath the mirror was alight with flames. They crawled up the sides of the mirror, lapping at the frame, but the mirror itself seemed to be impervious to the blaze. It was surrounded by tendrils of fire, but somehow not actually burning. I could see that its varnished wood frame was still completely intact. My father was nowhere to be seen in the photo, having ostensibly disappeared into the world of the mirror. As I squinted closer, though, using the glow of my cell phone for light, I could just make out what appeared to be a vague human figure standing just inside the glass. Its arms hung pendulously at its sides as it gazed blankly out at the world with glowing white eyes. I dropped the photos on the ground and dug my mother's diary out of my jeans pocket, wondering if the later entries offered some explanation for the photos. Starting from where I'd left off earlier that day, I followed my mother's account of the days leading up to my father's disappearance. 
which, as I knew now, was not really a disappearance, but a... a what? A self-immolation? A kind of bizarre transcendence? None of it made sense, and it all left me trembling with fear, forced to reconsider what I believed to be possible. On the last night that he spent with my mother, my father told her that he would soon cross into the world of the mirror. He seemed ecstatic, she said, goading about having completed his task. But he told her not to be afraid. He assured her that once he was inside the mirror, he would attain a new, ascended form, which would allow him to cross freely between our world and the world of the mirror. A cold chill ran through me as I slapped the book shut and let it fall at my side. In the quiet darkness of the house, I felt suddenly on edge. Every creak of the floorboards was an approaching footstep, every hum of the wind a disembodied voice calling my name. More than a few times throughout the night, some vague noise would tear me out of my restless sleep and shoot me bolt upright where I lay, scanning the darkness for movement. But nothing ever came. When morning finally arrived, I mustered the gusto to take one last tour of the property, making sure it was all in order for the arrival of the realtor. I was hoping when she got there I could sign some papers, hand her the keys, and drive home to New Mexico, although I had no idea if it would be that easy. And in truth, something deep inside me assured me that it wouldn't. The farm finally had me back, and I could feel a nagging sensation that whatever occupied that haunted property did not want me to leave. As I finished making my rounds, something propelled me towards the barn for one last look inside. Perhaps it was a kind of morbid curiosity, or perhaps it was something much darker. When I heaved the door open and stepped inside, I could see immediately that my fears were being realized. Something had changed in the night, Something inexplicable had taken place. Trembling legs carried me through the dim space, and I stared through wide eyes at what lay ahead. It wasn't until I reached what was left of the burrow's mirror that I could make sense of what I was looking at. It had been destroyed. Its smooth glass pane lay shattered in pieces before it. Only, the destruction hadn't come from an impact striking the face of the mirror but something that had come from behind the glass, forcing its way out. The shards lay scattered in a wide arc, and the mirror's wooden backing had a massive hole in it. Splintered bits of wood protruded from its center. I stooped before it to get a closer look. As I studied the frame, I could see what appeared to be claw marks, jagged and deep, like some great beast had held it for leverage while it scrambled its way out of the hole. On the floor, leading away from the wreckage, was a sporadic pattern of footprints. Although they were nothing like the prints of a human, they bared a closer resemblance to talons. They were grotesque, long and narrow, fitted with three sharp digits. My heart raced uncontrollably as I stared at the ground in disbelief. With clumsy, jittering hands, I attempted to fish my phone out of my pocket hoping I could still call for help. But when I heard the barn door slam shut, plunging my surroundings into darkness, I knew it was already too late. Are you thinking about getting into Dungeons & Dragons? Maybe you're looking to expand your horizons as a DM or a player. 
If that's the case, then it's time for you to check out the Dungeon Cast, the best D&D podcast out there that helps you passively learn all about the game just by listening. Join co-hosts Will and Brian as they break down the lore of a rich multiverse 50 years in the making in a lighthearted and beginner-friendly way. They cover everything from character creation options to tips for dungeon masters. There's something for everyone, no matter how long you've been playing TTRPGs. Get inspired while learning all about the unique planes of existence. Get the in-depth knowledge you need to help your combat encounters feel impactful, or learn about the origins and pantheons of every race and class the game offers. No stone is left unturned as every edition of the game is explored and explained in a way that benefits players of all different levels of experience. You can expand your TTRPG horizons in a way that's as entertaining as it is educational just by listening. All you have to do is go to your favorite podcast app or YouTube and search for The Dungeon Cast.